Okay, so this morning we're continuing on thinking through issues of uh, God's sovereignty and the connection that has to uh, how we function in God's world. And this morning we're looking at the topic of God's sovereignty as it relates to suffering and evil. Now, obviously, this is an immense subject. We, again, we could spend you know, a whole semester more in bodybuilders exploring this issue. We're thinking through... As God uh, reveals something of his authority, the givenness of his authority as the creator, and as we look out at this world and we see other people's experience, we go through our own experiences, we read history, and we see the overwhelming recounting of untold suffering and evil throughout the ages. I think any person who's Slightly reflective is going to ask the question, how do those two things add up? And it's interesting um, that no human, um, well, let me say that, as I've interacted with people in the West, whether it is someone who believes in the existence of God, generally, someone who is submitted to the authority of Scripture, or someone who is a complete agnostic or an atheist, Everyone is troubled with the presence of evil, and everyone wrestles with having some kind of explanation that has some element of being satisfying. And I would submit that it's only the scriptural explanation which gives the most coherent response, though the response scripture gives is not ultimately, we might say, satisfying because we don't have the mind of God. As we've been going through the subject time and time again, we've explored issues, we've tried to understand what Scripture reveals, and at the end of the day we say we submit to what God reveals about who he is, how he's created, and how he functions, and certainly this is one of those topics. Well, lest I kind of just jump in, I wanted to spend just a little time reflecting a little about this experience that we have with suffering and evil. Maybe the way we engage in this topic is related to our age. Um, Some of us get to go through um, a younger life without too much. I think of my own life. Um, I grew up with all my grandparents. I vaguely remember attending um, a funeral internment. I don't know, when I was... I remember looking between people's legs to see the coffin go into the ground. Like, that's how young I was. But it was, it was no close emotional connection. So I grew up, and no one close to me died. I never experienced something of great grief. And then I had to go to the hospital for a broken arm or being really sick. I mean, I, pre- I had a fairly, I'm going to say, easy, suffering-free life. I look out at the world and see some things, but I don't remember being particularly bothered by it. But sometimes we're young and we experience great grief and suffering, the death of close ones. Um, Some of us very particularly and acutely feel that suffering in and of ourselves. Um, Illness, internal uh, experiences of distress. So we may have a connection to it or we might have a very intimate experience of it as 
um, I think of what the psalmist says in uh, Psalm 23, as Jesus, our shepherd, leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. An incredible image there of what it is to walk in this life in the presence of the threat and the experience of death. Uh, Maybe other of us have wrestled with this as we've read biographies or read history and we've seen of tremendous suffering or tremendous evil in the past. Uh, Maybe it's reading just a widespread natural disaster. Maybe it's in the news, a tidal wave, hits, hits. Um, Was that, I'm trying to think of the most recent one. There's one in Japan and there's one off the coast of India, I think. Uh, Great tidal wave. Maybe you're reading about the Black Plague, uh, middle of the 14th century. Estimations, 75 to 150 million people, 40 to 50% of the population in some areas of Europe died because of the Black Plague. Um, Maybe it's uh, a personal illness or suffering you've experienced uh, through an accident. Maybe it's suffering because of how you've come into this world in your body, biology, Um, maybe it's trauma that you've personally experienced or someone close to you have experienced, abuse in the home or uh, a brutal robbery or uh, rape of something of some kind like that. As we go through life, we experience and we, we taste that what we have in this world is not the way it's supposed to be. We have this sense of It ought not to be like this. Evil feels like an imposition. It feels like something from outside is attacking and destroying. And along with that, we intuitively reflect and we ask, why? I think that's a very human response, whether it's someone who acknowledges the scripture or someone who says there is no God. We still look for an explanation for why is there evil Um, So we're challenged as Christians to reconcile our belief and confidence in a good and just and sovereign God with the presence of evil in a world that he created and in a world that he created as good. So here are um, two expressions uh, that kind of put together the complexity of this. And I... This is a good footnote. I get this from a book by um, Christensen on evil, the problem of evil, which I think is a a helpful current resource on this. So um, David Hume says this, Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent. He has will but not power. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Where do we get an explanation? How do we put those together? C.S. Lewis puts together the conundrum this way. If God were good, he would wish to make his creation perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. And I put these quotes up because I think they succinctly pull together the, the tension, the questions we feel as we enter into this particular topic of wanting to reconcile or understand the relationship between God's sovereignty and the reality of suffering and evil. Well, there are 
various places we might begin um, the discussion, just rhetorically for the sake of the discussion. There are various places um, that we go as we think about the topic, which we might say are foundational starting places. What is, we might say, what is the most prominent or preeminent theological um, truth that orients how this conversation develops? As we've been talking about the issue of God's sovereignty and thinking through the compatibility between God's sovereignty um, and human volition, human choice, human accountability and responsibility, we've been trying to bring these together and we're, we've been emphasizing that both God is sovereign and over all things. He has a plan and a purpose for this world that is being carried out according to his order, but according to his decree, and that is compatible with human choice, human volition. And that we need to be careful we don't emphasize one to the de-emphasis of the other or to say something about one side that causes us to distort what Scripture clearly says in one way or another. So as we look at Scripture, I think the, the where Scripture begins and ends on this issue is the place where we begin and end, and that is that God does all things for his glory. So the issue of human volition in, in our discussion of evil is important and valid, but the, the will of man to do evil, the ability of man to do evil, is not the starting point. The starting point is the glory of God. So God does all things for his glory. I, I want to start by saying we, we should acknowledge that God is not constrained by anything outside of himself. No one forces God to do something. The creation of the world and Adam and Eve's fall into sin did not force God to do anything or constrain him to do anything. So two passages I think are important here. I think my notes are ahead of my points. Let me go back here. Um, is Psalm 115 verse 3. Psalm 100 verse 15. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. All that he does, he does according to his own pleasure. His purposes, his promises, his decrees are all something that has its foundation, its fountain, its origination in the character of God. Ephesians 1 verse 5 says a similar thing regarding salvation, that our redemption is according to the purpose of his will. Again, rooting it in the nature and the will and the purposes of God. And all that God has done, is doing, and will do is for his own glory. So let's go to Romans 11, verse 36. This is a concluding statement um, to a three-chapter-long um, series of arguments that Paul has been developing. And he comes in his conclusion to this. In Romans 11, verse 36, for from him, 
and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. And I have there a cross-reference in Colossians 1. Um, There we read Paul expressing this in relationship to Christ. For by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now, we might be tempted to read over something there, but where where Paul here talks about invisible creation and invisible, that is, real things that are not um, obvious to our vision, he lists thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities, These are a a series of words that the New Testament writers use to speak of um, angelic powers that exist and are operative but are not obvious to our physical eyes. Both holy angels and unholy angels. So Paul here is kind of including this comprehensive arc. All things, everything, everything about everything has its origination in Christ. All things were made, were created by him, and all things were created through him and for him. So a, a parallel thought there from Romans 11.36. So this summary statement in Romans 11.36 uh, is pulling together what Paul has been saying in these three chapters. And I'd just like to read a section in Romans chapter 9. Um, I'm going to read this, make a few comments, and um, refer back to it um, a few more times this morning. But I want to read through a, a, a chunk here of Scripture just to get a sense of the way Paul is developing the argument and um, where he's going with it and its particular relevancy to this morning's topic. So Romans chapter 9, I'm going to begin reading in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise accounted as offspring. For that is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau a hated. Then Paul anticipates that natural question that comes, I think, from all those who are followers, followers of God. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And our response is, Paul, these things are hard to understand. Um, On the basis of what you said, what is the basis of God's justice in finding fault? Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So we see here in verses 22 and 23 that Paul is framing the purposes of God as he thinks of the condemned and the redeemed in light of the display of his glory. We might think this passage, we might think of this passage speaking about election. But we see Paul is not just concerned with election, he's also concerned with the larger question of the reality of unrighteousness and the rightness of God in condemning that unrighteousness. And we might say, well, why would God do that? Why would he purpose the presence of such wickedness like Pharaoh um, performed and then was judged? In verse 22 then and 23, kind of Paul is pressing towards this question. In verse 23, he leads us the place that we must ultimately rest. What if God, he asked the question, verse 22, then in 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, mercy which he's prepared beforehand for glory. So we see Paul is framing the whole question. He's saying, wherever you meander in your questioning, in your wrestling, here's where you ultimately have to end up. You have to end up reflecting on God doing something for the purposes of his own glory. To kind of stand back from this and pull out, as we look at this particular passage and other passages in Scripture... As the ruler over all things, who knew all things before he created anything, God is over this in such a way and working in such a way that all that occurs in this world is aligned with this ultimate purpose of the display of his glory. That's the ultimate orientation. So as we look at Scripture... And we, and we ask a whole lot of subsidiary questions. They all fall under what God is accomplishing for his own glory. In this section, Paul is particularly asking, he's asking a particular question. But as, as I read what he's saying in chapter 9, I'm caused to reflect on something he said in the previous section in Romans chapter 8. So I want to go back to Romans 8 and verse 18.
To situate his argument, let's begin in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And what a... What an incredible statement there. As people redeemed in Christ, we have been delivered from the absolute tyranny and domination of sin. We have been freed from being slaves of sin. Because of spiritual renewal and new life through the Spirit, we can now live by faith in obedience. But it's not merely about what we do, It's fundamentally about our relationship, and this relationship is a relationship where we have experienced reconciliation with God, and we call him our dear Father. There is a level of intimacy there. There is a level of fellowship there, which we have because of the work of Christ. What a glorious reality. We still experience temptation. We still experience the presence and reality of sin, but it is no longer the tyranny of the absolute master over our souls. We experience intense temptation, which feels like a demand to sin, but we have been delivered from that demand because of Christ, and we can now look to God as our heavenly Father. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. God's spirit that he puts within us bears that witness, does an inner work in us. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So so now Paul introduces this idea of suffering. Our suffering, he links Our suffering, not just out there, but our suffering with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Back in chapter 6, Paul had linked the death and resurrection of Christ with, with our spiritual experience. When we are united with Christ, we are united into his death and his resurrection. And because of that, we have died to the tyranny of sin and we've been raised to life in Christ. But that spiritual reality does not mean that we have escaped any possibility of future suffering. There is still the present reality of suffering. But the nature of that suffering we see here, Paul links with our union with Christ. Provided we suffer with him, for what end? In order that we might be glorified with him. So here we see something very provocative, something very, um, I don't know, we, we, don't, we don't rejoice at this. And we don't say, sign me up for suffering. This just sounds like a great deal. I, I can't wait. Like, um, I can't imagine a better thing. We don't do that. We imagine everything that excludes suffering. It's a very provocative statement. We go here, Oh, well, what, just a moment here. How, 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 we've just got done talking about our dearest Heavenly Father who has adopted us as His sons and, and brought us in to such an extent that we will share with the inheritance of His Son. 
our, our brains don't naturally link these two realities and concepts. Our inclination is to say, since God is our loving Heavenly Father, then surely he would not let his children suffer. And Paul presents this, and it blasts our human intuitions. It blasts our intuitions of what a good, loving Heavenly Father would do. And I think we just need to stop there and go, Lord, my ways are not your ways. My intuitions of what is good and right and just and loving are, are, are not your ways. And we need, to, we need to just submit ourselves here and go, Lord, I do not see it naturally like you see it. Help me to, to gaze into your word. Help me to know you better that I might a little more and a little more understand the glory and the goodness and the beauty of your ways. This is one of the hard things about discipleship. Because we as humans do not embrace this. This is an issue of submission to the nature and the purposes and the plans of the glorious God. Paul picks up this idea of suffering then. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth being compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us for... The creation with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected. Boy, I read that badly, didn't I? For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Who subjected it to futility? The subjection to futility and the Future hope has its origination in the creator. Both in the way God created reality, the world and humans. And how that reflects his nature and his purposes. These things are connected. And, and they have, they're functioning under the, the sovereign authority and purposes and plans of God. Verse 21, for the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. See how realistic Paul is about our experience in this world. We, we haven't escaped a world that's subjected to futility. We have the spirit. We have the seal, the promise. We have a hope. We have an expectation. But we don't have the full realization of being free from the presence and the effects of sin. We are still experiencing the suffering that's in this world as a result of evil. Verse 24, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings to teach for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit, knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know 
that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So notice the placement of verse 28, the, the place in the development, union with Christ, free from the tyranny of sin, reconciliation and intimate fellowship with God, calling him our father. But in our union with Christ, we are suffering with him as we anticipate the hope of glory that will come because of our union with Christ. Does God leave us alone? No, his spirit is in us. His spirit is in us in our experience of suffering to the extent that the spirit of God is praying, is interceding on our behalf as we experience the difficulties, the trials, the miseries of suffering and evil in this world. How do we experience that? Why is God doing that? Well, we see here in verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things are working together for good. That is our experiential, personal good. Verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, we see here, uh, let's just back. We, we see here that God is glorifying himself in all that he does, a general statement. God's glory um, is something that we personally anticipate as his children. And the reality of, our, of, of the process of our salvation and our ultimate union with Christ and inheriting with him Eternal glory speaks to God's glory as well. So this leads us to say or to make the claim that God's glory is supremely displayed through the redeeming work of Christ. I want us to go to Ephesians 1. So we've moved from thinking thinking about our salvation and the purposes of God in saving us in our union with Christ and the reality of suffering, God's concern for us in our experience of suffering, his ministry to us in the midst of our suffering, the hope that we have and the confidence that we can have that whatever we experience, it is on account of our good as we look forward to ultimate glory. So in Ephesians chapter 1, here Paul is just marveling at the glories of our salvation. We have been blessed, verse, uh, Ephesians 1 verse 3, we've been blessed by the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has bestowed on us incredible good, to think of Romans 8.28. The God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing is the God who has for his children all that is good. And we have that already in Christ. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious 
grace to the praise of his glorious grace. It's for our good, and we anticipate glory, but the ultimate end of our good and our glorification is the glory of God. Look at verse 6 again. All of this in his redeeming work for us to the praise of his glorious grace. We see this repeated in verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In verse 14, who is the guarantee, the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. Why is God doing this? To the praise of his glory. God's glory is the ultimate end to all things. That's why he's redeemed us. So, I don't say this glibly. We have not much time, so I'm trying to be compressed. But whatever we experience as God's children, Scripture gives us certain things that are true about our experience. That it is for our good, and it is to the praise of his glory. And when we're in the middle of that, we are being pressed to either submit to who God is and how he's revealed himself in, the, in this world and in his word, or bring God into judgment according to our understanding of what is right and just and good. And that's the crux of discipleship. That is the crux of spiritual growth. Do I submit to God's purposes, to God's wisdom, to God's goodness? Do I Do I allow his word to continue to reshape my perspective? Or do I resist it? Let's just go to um, 2 Corinthians 12 for a moment. You know, I touched on some of these themes. um, I forget what it was. Sometime this year I preached on discipleship, discipline of the Lord, um, but, but in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul here is talking. He, he is experiencing immense suffering. He's not specific, but he says in verse 8, 2 Corinthians 12, 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And with a bit of sanctified imagination, I don't believe that's Paul going, please deliver me, please deliver me, please deliver me. I, I think I, I can imagine there were three periods of time where Paul entered into specific, a specific time of prayer and fasting. That there were three instances of prolonged pleading with the Lord and wrestling with the Lord in prayer. And we read in verse 9, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness and insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. See, Paul here, if you were to interview him at at an end of a particular day, he's worn out. He's worn down by the pressures, by the persecutions, by the physical infirmities. He feels spent. He feels at the end of himself. 
And the witness here of Scripture is that he tastes of the sufficient Christ, in that Christ is giving him endurance in the midst of that difficulty. This is, can I say, this is um, reality TV. This is reality discipleship in the life of Paul. It wasn't easy. But we see Paul acknowledging what it is to trust in Jesus. And what's Jesus saying there in verse 9? To use some other, verse, uh, other words from Scripture. What you are experiencing is for your good and my glory. What you're experiencing is for your good and for your glory. And I want you to see the submissiveness of the Apostle Paul here and just not read over it. Well, he was the Apostle. That was easy for him. No. Now, it wasn't any easier for him than it is for us to come to this place where he didn't want to be. Lord, deliver me. Lord, deliver me. Oh, Lord, deliver me. And Jesus says, I love you. This is for your good and for my glory. And Paul doesn't, he doesn't have a bigger explanation here. He doesn't say, and so I understood exactly what God was doing here, and so I was able to have some relief. He just submitted. And Scripture is not without reason or explanation, but when it, the, the ultimate point is a point of submission to who God is and to how he works. I want to go to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2 and verse 9. Hebrews 2, 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. And here's a summary statement of the humility of his incarnation, of his ministry of suffering, of the acute suffering on the cross, and then his resurrection to glory. The, the, he was made a little lower, right? All up to that glory of being the firstborn from the dead. He was made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus, but now crowned with glory and honor. Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God we might taste death. He, um, he might taste death for everyone. So the glory of Christ is through the suffering of death. And we might pause there and go, okay, Lord, could you have come up with a better plan for redemption? Like, if you were writing the story of redemption, wouldn't you write out suffering? Wouldn't you write in some kind of glory display, some kind of, like, immense thing? And you would make sure that the hero was not the one who went through all the suffering. We don't write the stories that way. But that's God's purposes and plans. We might say something like, 
well, God could have done some other things, but he chose to do it this way. I think it might be better to say God in his perfections created the world this way because the world created this way most clearly reflects the nature of his person and his character. And Jesus came not as a sheep or a cow or a lamb. He came as a man because we are made in his image. Would there be other ways, we might say, are there other ways that God could have created someone in his image? I think the answer is God created what it looks like to be in his image. And we are them. This is the mystery of God's purposes. This is the nature of this world according to his purposes. As we think about the relationship between God's sovereignty, God's authority, and suffering and evil that we experience, all of those questions are subsidiary, I believe, to this most central reality of the gospel. And it served my heart well that when I, uh, whether it's in my own life personally or I'm counseling someone who like, has, a, has, has so much grief and sorrow and chaos in their lives because of evil that's come at them. Because suffering that they've experienced, not of their choice. And I asked the question, God, how could you look down on this person and allow this suffering? How could this be part of your good purposes? And my mind goes off and I think of all the suffering How many people right now are crying out in anguish because of some evil being perpetrated against them right now, this very moment? I do not have the mental capacity to reconcile that. I don't have the internal emotional ability. I don't have the mental power to be able to pull all that together and go, that makes sense to me and I'm very content with that. I don't have that. I don't think I'll ever have that. And my only, the place I go is to the cross. I go to the cross and I say, God, what have you done here? We might say that the killing of Jesus is the greatest act of evil ever perpetrated in creation. What could be more evil than killing the perfect son of God? I don't think there is a greater evil that has been perpetuated in creation. And yet, in the same circumstance, there is no greater demonstration of love and justice and mercy and goodness. And I sit with that. And I say, I I don't have the comprehension, but I am so thankful that you sent Christ to suffer for my salvation, for the salvation of of so many untold people. And I cannot but say you are glorified. And and I I, I can't pull it together. I, I can't get to that place of being ultimately satisfied. But it's a point of submission and it's a point of thankfulness. It's a point of worship. I have at least 
the most clarity on the suffering in Christ and the glory that God accomplished in the suffering of Christ than I have in subsidiary evils and subsidiary sufferings. Because I think I know the most, God has revealed the most in particular ways about what he has done through that great act of evil and that tremendous amount of suffering that Jesus experienced that was according to God's good and perfect and wise plan for our salvation and for his ultimate glory. I'm going to go to Acts 2.23. And I want to be a little provocative here. So if you want to email me, you're welcome to. It's jfelt at Calvary Bible York. That's what he would say, isn't it? God did not merely allow Jesus to suffer. He did not merely permit Jesus to suffer. Acts 2 and 23, succinct statements. We don't need these succinct statements because of the breadth of the theology we see in Scripture. Acts 2, 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Could you be more clear here? then deliver it up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge. Acts 4.27 For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the peoples of Israel. Acts 4.28 To do what your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Not merely allowed, not merely merely permitted, but purposed and planned according to God's specific directions. What for? For the accomplishment of his glory. Now, I'm looking at the time, and I'm running out of time. So I want us to go to the Gospel of John. Um, If you're in the Gospel of John class, this is review. But... But Paul is wrestling with the nature of this question. Well, he's wrestling with a lot of things, and he's wanting to convey a lot of things in the gospel. One of the things he is clearly conveying is dealing with this question of God's authority and power in Jesus' suffering. So let me frame it this way. Now, what kind of powerful Savior do you have if he was arrested and crucified? On what basis do you say that is a demonstration of power and authority? That's a demonstration of impotence. That's a demonstration of weakness. There's nothing about that, the cynic would say, that has anything to do with the glorious power of God. And you want me to put my faith into someone who suffered and died, and then you want me to believe he rose from the dead? That's a joke. You Christians are so mentally confused, so irrational, so disconnected from reality to have such a belief. And so Paul, um, Paul, John is particularly concerned about this. And there is a drumbeat through the Gospel of John 
I'm just going to read the verses out. So if you've got a quick pen, you might want to go back and look at these, uh, quick writing. Um, John 7.30. So they were seeking to arrest him. Okay, so John is wanting to record an effort to get at Jesus. They were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. All opposition was impotent before the plan of Jesus. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to arrest him. Not possible. John 7.32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. I'm reading a few verses if you want to turn to John 7. Um, And then verse 44. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. And the officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to them, why did you not bring him? And they're like, no one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? John 10, 18. No one, oh, verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Everything is happening under the authority and the timing and the purposes of Jesus. John ten thirty nine. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. John 13, verse 27. This is the Last Supper. The disciples are asking, who's going to betray you? Jesus says, it's the one whom I give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So verse, um, verse 26, so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. This is, this is a physical demonstration of what is happening spiritually, what's happening according to God's plan, revealed in what Jesus says next. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Notice the entering in to Judas by Satan is subsidiary to this act of Jesus. John's conveying here that the entering in to Judas by Satan was under the authority of Jesus. And Jesus then gives a command. What then you are going to do, do quickly. So Jesus is instructing Judas to do what must be done to fulfill scripture because now the time has come where Jesus will lay down his life, and he will lay down his life as evil men do evil and wicked things. We see this reflected, this, uh, this working of God and man in Luke twenty-two twenty-two. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed so john is making this this point is the suffering of jesus a demonstration of weakness and and john is very careful to record the happenings and the words of jesus to communicate absolutely not everything that happened was under the particular 
purposes and plans of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Finally, John nineteen eleven. Here's Jesus speaking to Pilate. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who de- delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Okay, I just want to quickly end with a few summary statements here. Implication one, whatever happens in this world is part of God's sovereign plan and all that he purposes, all that he plans is for the purpose of his own glory. Think of Romans 11.36. We were there much earlier this morning. Implication number two, our human tendency is to reject God's purposes for his own glory. Just want to read here Matthew 16. Matthew 16 and verse 21. From this time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things for the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. We are just like Peter. We look and hear what Jesus says, and we go, no, 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 Jesus, you've got this all wrong. And we can, I think, easily bring um, Peter's reflection to our own lives when we look at our suffering, when we look out at the world where evil exists. Our tendency is to look at God and go, you've, you've got this wrong. No, we, God hasn't got it wrong. We have it wrong because we don't see it the way God sees it. We don't understand all of his purposes. We don't understand the depth and the reality of goodness like God does. So implication two, we need to realize our human tendency is to reject God's purposes. Implication three, When we are in the shadow of death, Jesus, our true and perfect shepherd, leads us and cares for us. Psalm 23. When he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. When we are experiencing suffering and evil, our tendency is to go, God, where are you? And the answer is right in front. Right in front. Jesus is right there leading you. His spirit is ministering to you. His spirit is interceding for you in your suffering. Jesus is right there, leading. Implication number four, the Spirit of Christ helps us in our weakness while enduring suffering. So Jesus, our good shepherd, is leading us. The Spirit of Christ is interceding for us. And finally, implication number five, because of God's unwavering commitment to his own glory, we can have the confidence that every single detail of our lives is part of God's purposes that we might be conformed to the image of his son. 
Romans 8, 28. We were reading there, weren't we? Okay, let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, these are profoundly difficult things.